We're swiftly approaching the end of period five, so we'll need to say some goodbyes. Not just to the row. After this episode, never again shall we encounter a non-metal. Kind of. There's a pretty big asterisk qualifying that statement, because several of the elements we'll discuss in future episodes are not metals. We've got a couple noble gases, a handful of metalloids, and several elements that are so short-lived that we can't reliably categorize them as anything at all. But of the elements on the periodic table that belong to the reactive group specifically called nonmetals, iodine is the last one we have the pleasure of meeting. That's not to say that our future entries will be boring, quite the opposite, but today, let's appreciate one last vibrant vapor that your body simply cannot do without. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we sail the seven seas in search of iodine. In times of war, sometimes a little creativity is required to produce the goods that a country might otherwise receive through trade. Such was the case in 1811, when Napoleon's France was at war with England. Bernard Courtois was in the gunpowder business, a pretty good gig when the bullets are flying. The only problem was a shortage of one critical ingredient, potassium nitrate. Usually, that was harvested from the ashes of firewood. But France had been so heavily deforested that there wasn't much wood left. Seeing the land picked clean of all suitable plant life, Courtois turned toward the sea. Specifically, seaweed. It did the trick. In the burnt remains of kelp, Courtois found sodium and potassium. And from what it looked like, something else, too. When he added sulfuric acid to the ashes, a puff of vivid purple gas appeared. Upon cooling, it condensed into dark and lustrous crystals. Courtois suspected that this might be a new chemical element, but, but this was all a little over his head. He sent samples out to some of France's most brilliant scientists and they in turn passed the substance along to their friends and colleagues. Joseph-Louis Gay-Lussac was the one to verify that, yes, Courtois had discovered a brand new element, one that belonged to the halogen family. Inspired by chlorine, the halogen gas Humphrey Davy named for its pale greenish-yellow color, Gay-Lussac dubbed the element ione, from the Greek word for the violet hue of this halogen gas. By sheer incredible coincidence, Humphrey Davy was in France at the time. 
Remember, Davy was British, and France was using Courtois' gunpowder to kill British soldiers. The prospect of finding any Englishman in French borders was laughable. And yet, the most prominent British chemist, who probably knew more than anyone on Earth about the halogens, just so happened to be in Paris upon a Frenchman's discovery of a new halogen gas. And while Davy was deep in enemy territory, he was not constantly looking over his shoulder in fear for his life. He was there on the personal invitation of the Emperor himself. Napoleon wished to award Davy for his many valuable contributions to science. This greatly appealed to Davy, for he hoped, or at least he claimed, through the instrumentality of men in science to soften the asperity of national war. Very high-minded of everyone, but actually convening this diplomatic meeting was logistically difficult and socially awkward. For instance, Davy had coincidentally just gotten married, and his new bride also received special dispensation to cross the firing line. Now, lots of newlyweds honeymoon in Paris. Rarely do they make that passage upon a ship carrying prisoners of war. Upon arrival, the welcome they received was less of a red carpet for guests of the Emperor and more akin to the pat-down one receives at airport security. Davy was especially amused that guards saw fit to search his pockets, his clothes, and even his shoes before admitting entry. The Davies were also accompanied on this trip by Humphrey's protege, Michael Faraday, who acted as the couple's valet and recorded their travels. It's through this diary that the comedy of manners continues, like when the Brit expresses disgust at the objectionable nature of French cooking. I think it is impossible for an English person to eat the things that come out of this place, except through ignorance or actual and oppressive hunger. And yet, perhaps appearances may be worse than the reality, for in some cases their dishes are to the taste excellent and inviting. But then they require, whilst on the table, a dismissal of all thoughts respecting the cookery or the kitchen. And when Mrs. Davy went for a walk in the Tuileries Gardens, she quickly learned that the hat she wore was embarrassingly out of touch with the contemporary sartorial trends that side of the channel. She attracted such a crowd of tittering Parisiennes that she had to be escorted off the premises. In between such awkward episodes as these, Professor Davy found time to inspect samples of Ione with his traveling chemistry lab. He confirmed that this certainly was a new element, but offered one suggestion. The name Ione has been proposed in France for this new substance, he wrote. In English, it would lead to confusion, for its compounds would be called Ionic and Ionian. By terming it Iodine, this confusion will be avoided, and the name will be more analogous to Chlorine and Fluorine. 
could be seen as presumptuous of Davy to stroll into hostile territory and tell the French their name is bad and they should feel bad. Many French chemists did see Davy as meddlesome at first, but he won over just as many during his travels abroad. At the very least, honoring a scientist's work even when you're at war with his home country is a gracious gesture, the kind you might expect to engender goodwill in said scientist. But it seems that the negatives stuck out in his mind far more prominently than any positives. After the trip, he wrote to his mother, England is the only country to live in, however interesting it may be to see other countries. Even worse, following Napoleon's final defeat at the Battle of Waterloo two years later, Davy wrote an impassioned letter to the UK's Prime Minister encouraging severe punishment for the losers. Pages upon pages of the harshest indictments of the French people. Whoever knows the French people knows that it is impossible to depend on their gratitude, and that they are not influenced by kindness. Irregular in their affections, capricious in their feelings, without public spirit, their ruling passions are selfishness and vanity, and by these they are kept in continued agitation. It's certainly not what you would expect from someone who enjoyed a foreign holiday collaborating with his peers. Apparently, the Lady Davy shared in this antipathy. After he died in 1829, she donated most of his possessions to the Royal Society of Chemistry. But she withheld the medal he had received from Napoleon. She personally took it to Mounts Bay on the southern coast of Cornwall, and cast it into the sea. It's still out there, somewhere. Should you chance upon it, the Society is prepared to pay out a reward of £1,800. So much for softening the asperity of national war. Iodine's connection to the battlefield may be a little less direct than chlorine's or bromine's, but it joins the other halogens in being plainly relevant to the field of medicine. Like chlorine, iodine is useful as an antiseptic. Like fluorine, we artificially supplement our diets with iodine. But while a fluorine deficiency will lead to poor dental health, a lack of iodine can have much greater consequences. During a particularly frustrating conversation, highway interaction, or court hearing, one person might wish to rudely impugn another's intelligence. Some words commonly employed for this function include moron, idiot, and imbecile. Less commonly known is that these words rose to prominence as medical diagnoses. In 1912, a book titled Backward and Feeble-Minded Children, Clinical Studies in the Psychology of Defectives laid out how these terms distinguish themselves. Idiots, those so defective that the mental development never exceeds that of a normal child of about two years. 
imbeciles, those whose development is higher than that of an idiot, but whose intelligence does not exceed that of a normal child of about seven years. Morons, those whose mental development is above that of an imbecile, but does not exceed that of a normal child of about 12 years. A century later, the field of psychology has changed both its terminology and how much basic respect is afforded to fellow humans. Meanwhile, the vernacular has adopted these words as insults. In the same league is the word cretin, which today is mostly known as a slightly more obscure alternative to the aforementioned invectives. Yet it too has a past in medicine. Cretinism is the name that was historically given to a congenital condition that causes symptoms that are both physical and mental. Often those include impaired growth, hair loss, delayed puberty, neurological impairment, and goiter. That last one is the medical name for an enlargement of the thyroid, a gland in the neck responsible for important hormonal functions. It's one of the most characteristic and visible symptoms that can occur with this condition. For a long time, the only thing people really knew about this syndrome was that some places seemed more susceptible than others, especially places that were far away from the sea. In the 1800s, nearly 5% of people born in the Swiss Alps were afflicted to some degree or another. It was in that same century that doctors slowly started to draw connections. For instance, Jean-Baptiste Boussingault discovered in 1831 that adding a little sea salt to meals could stave off goiter. And in the 1850s, Adolphe Chatin found a correlation between prevalence of cretinism and the iodine content in local soil. Predictably and satisfyingly, supplemental iodine acted as both a cure and a prophylactic for these conditions. A solution that is both simple and inexpensive. We only need very small amounts of iodine in our diet, but that small amount is very important. Like fluorine and chlorine, supplemental iodine was cleverly deployed to as many people as possible. Not via the drinking water, but by way of an ingredient that's nearly as common. Table salt. For the third time, a halogen was responsible for one of the most effective public health initiatives in history. And once again, that wasn't without its share of controversy. Everything and anything can be made political often in ways that are as perfectly legitimate as they are unexpected. In India, one of those surprisingly political things is salt. In the 19th century, occupying British forces subjected the Indian people to a high tax on salt, 
really just one of many superfluous and excessive taxes that were a cruel insult on top of the regime's often brutal injury. The British enforced a monopoly on the salt trade, which absurdly meant that allowing a bowl of seawater to evaporate in the sun was a criminal act. It was the cause of strife for several decades in India, and when the Indian independence movement gained traction in the 20th century, salt made for a natural tool of civil disobedience. It's something everyone requires regardless of class or religion. Alongside Mahatma Gandhi, anti-colonial activists began a non-violent march to the sea in the spring of 1930. Eighty people led the march, with thousands more joining in over the next three weeks, until more than 50,000 protesters convened in the seaside town of Dandi. There, Gandhi held a fistful of silt in the air and proclaimed, With this, I am shaking the foundations of the British Empire. He boiled it over a fire, producing salt that, by British law, was illegal. Over the next few months, tens of thousands of Indians were beaten or arrested for that crime, including Gandhi himself. No changes came about as a direct response to the salt march, but the independence movement was playing the long game. Even if they lost the battle, this galvanized Indians across social strata and brought global attention to the oppressive British Raj. It was a landmark on the road to India's eventual independence in 1947, and hugely influential upon the American civil rights movement and similar campaigns around the world. And salt, especially salt made by one's own hands, became an enduring political symbol. So, when many countries around the world, especially European countries, began mandating the addition of iodine to salt in the mid-20th century, it understandably met with some resistance in the recently freed nation. Rumors even spread that, rather than preventing disease, iodization would cause diseases, including tuberculosis, diabetes, and cancer. It's quite reminiscent of the hullabaloo that chlorine and fluorine had met not long before. Turns out that people get a little uncomfortable when you add substances to their food and water. But sometimes it really is a good idea. Especially if it comes from group 17 on the periodic table. At least most of the time. Sorry, bromine. What this means, of course, is that table salt makes a convenient way to showcase not just two, but three elements in your collection. But we've run into this before. Convenient often means uninteresting. And it certainly won't do for the discerning collector. So what awaits those atom accumulators who are willing to work a little? Iodine is still medicinally important today. It appears in several formulations on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, notably as an antiseptic, an essential nutrient, and a thyroid medication. Recent personal experience indicates that iodine solutions are not the consumer's most commonly found antiseptic. I couldn't find it at all on the shelves of my local drugstore. 
You may have different luck though, and it can easily be found online. Not only as an antiseptic, but as part of emergency preparedness kits. In the event of a nuclear disaster, one of the greatest health threats comes from radioactive fallout. The body will absorb radioactive isotopes of elements that it normally encounters as stable, and iodine is one of them. Iodine-127 is the element's only stable isotope, and it's also the only one you're likely to encounter in your day-to-day -day activity. Fission reactions produce a high amount of iodine-131, which is very radioactive. Your thyroid can't tell the difference, though, so if it's surrounded by bountiful iodine-131, it'll cram itself full of the stuff. It is, effectively, a death sentence. However, if you happen to have an emergency supply of iodine-127 on hand and consume it in the immediate aftermath of such a disaster, the thyroid will fill up on that, and won't have any room to admit the nasty version. It's cheap and highly effective. Not only in case of an intentional strike like at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also in civilian accidents, like at Kishtim and Fukushima, or in case of nearby military tests, as we saw all around the central United States through the mid-20th century. The CDC emphasizes that table salt, although iodized, contains nowhere near enough iodine to be helpful in this regard. So, you know, in case the worst does occur, don't compound the problem by chugging salt water. Speaking of salt water, you could make like Courtois and harvest your own iodine from seaweed. This will be especially fun for those of you who have been itching for another home chemistry experiment. If you're lucky enough to live by the seaside, you may very well have kelp washing up on your shores that you can harvest for free. But fret not if you live farther inland. You only need travel as far as the grocery store. If your local big-name retailer doesn't happen to sell seaweed, then the nearest Asian specialty store will. Either way, you can expect less than a 1% yield, so you'll need a generous pile of seaweed. You're going to burn all that kelp down to ashes, so if you've gathered it on the beach, make sure to dry it out for a week or two first. From there, it's a matter of filtering, acidifying, and distilling a slurry of the ashes. It's not quite as straightforward as all that, but it's fully within reach for the home chemist. Just don't expect anyone to give you a medal for your efforts. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Angle. To see more detailed instructions for the seaweed experiment, or to read Davy's ravings, visit episodictable.com slash I. That is the letter I, not the thing that sees. I'd like to thank you for being patient with the release schedule over the past few weeks. Remember to get your flu shot, folks. Even if you do contract influenza, the vaccine can help your body recover much more quickly than it would on its own. 
If I didn't get my shot, I would probably still be laid up instead of recording an episode. Next time, we'll see that Xenon is no dope. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton, reminding you that if you're looking for an insult that will only offend your intended target, you're mostly limited to provocations of a scatological nature.